Hi, I'm Beck Rayner, and this is the Military Wife Life podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, and embraces the spouses behind the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever, whenever, and Defence Bank offers competitive products and services tailored for ADF members and defence spouses. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Just as a warning, this episode contains some discussion of suicide. So if anything comes up for you or you know of someone in need of mental health support, call Free ADF Veterans and Family Service Open Arms on 1800 011 046 or in an emergency call 000. Welcome to the Military Wife Life podcast, Kaz. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. If we can start firstly by you telling us how long you've been with your husband and where you met. I'll start by saying that he is somewhat younger than me. So Matt, there is an age difference of 10 years between us. When we first met, he was quite young. So he was only 18 when we first met and I was coming out of a pretty nasty divorce. We met through mutual friends in the area that we were living in and we just kind of connected. This was 20 years ago. We were really close, really good mates. We could talk about anything. 20 years later, he still makes me laugh like no one else can. So when you met Matt, was he already in the Defence Force? Was he looking at joining? What was his situation? When we first met, As an 18-year-old, he was working in the real estate industry. And the best way I can describe it was saying he just had itchy feet. He was unsettled. He didn't really know what he wanted to do. Uh, His ultimate goal was to join the Defence Force. And then when we got together and we moved on in in a relationship, we moved to a town called Armidale, which is regional New South Wales. They had 1216 Hunter River Lancers there. And once we'd settled down into that town, he became fairly serious and wanted to join the Defence Force. That was probably about a year in, maybe 18 months in. And we had talked about, I already had two children at that stage, and we had talked about the impacts of joining as a full-time versus joining as a reservist. And um, I, I write about this a fair bit in the book because marrying somebody or being in that deep-seated relationship with somebody who wants to transition into the Defence Force, I was nervous. I had no clue what that actually meant. And we had a lady come from, I believe, Sydney to meet with us. Her description of what was going to happen really scared me and frightened me off. In hindsight, wished I had have done different. However, Back then, what she had described um, about the moving around of kids and I guess my naive understanding of all of that prevented him from going full-time service. And at that stage, he joined the Army Reserves. Again, my very naive understanding at that point was that meant that he was going to do a couple of weekends a month and one or two weeks a year. And because it was such an active time when he joined, it was actually the reverse. He ended up pretty much working on full-time service. So did you originally sort of go into it thinking, oh, well, it'll be an ease into the Defence Force, but it actually wasn't? Pretty much. So we had agreed that if he joined reserves, we'd give it sort of a year or two, see how it went. And then if you wanted to transition over, he could. Um, all being well and the family okay. 
at the time that he joined, they were doing so many exercises and so many training things. And there was high rotation of deployments across Iraq and obviously Afghanistan was about to kick in. So at that point, it was like a revolving front door. I think the most time he probably spent at home in any one month was maybe a week because of all of the exercises and away and training. And And so what was the reality of that for you? Because the expectation going into it was totally different. And then, you know, you're already in it, you're doing it. He's obviously loving it. So, I mean, you can't pull back from that. How were you handling all of that? And and I guess transitioning into that life? I was very fortunate at that point because I was still very heavily embedded in my career as well. And I traveled a lot for my career. I do systems administration and design and software design. So I was traveling a lot overseas. I had nine countries in my portfolio and got to come and go quite a bit. And he was coming and going quite a bit. And I don't think we actually had time to stop and think what this all meant. I think we were just in the, you know, in the middle of it and we were making it work. We had a really good network of friends that if we were both going to be away at the same time, somebody would come and stay at the house with the girls. We had the routines in play. I describe it, you know, when Matt went away to basic training and came back, it was night and day. The boy that went away to the man that came home, and and certainly not that quickly, but the deeper entrenched he got, the more he evolved and routine became second nature to us. So from that regard, we just got on with it and he loved it. So did your husband end up going full-time Defence Force since he was, you know, doing it full-time pretty much as a reservist? Yeah, so in the first rotation day, there was talk of a deployment and Matt put his hand up for it and was selected with the unit in Brisbane. So they call it CFTS, Contract Full-Time Service, and he signs a 12-month contract to the unit in Brisbane. The girls and I, for that one, we stayed in Armidale. We chose not to go. And what they basically do, they set them through a whole lot of training in their home unit, and then they transition them up to the unit that they're deploying out with, usually a month or two months before deployment. So he did, he went to Brisbane, and then they deployed out to Iraq for an eight-month rotation. We got to see him for the 10 days on Rockall, where he came home, and then at the end of the deployment, they transitioned back to the unit that they've deployed with for another month or two, and then they can come back to their home unit. So he did that for Iraq, and then he was probably only home I think about six months back with the reservist unit and there was another opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan and that was with Townsville so again it was another 12-month contract and at that point uh, the girls and I transitioned up to Townsville with him. And did you, I guess, at that point start to feel like you were a real defence family? I guess you went into it thinking, oh, he'll just do a couple of weekends a month. And then the reality was that he was pretty much high rotation exercises and then putting his hand up and getting selected for deployments. But you're, I guess, not traditionally seen as a defence family because he's signing up for 12 months at a time sort of thing. How did you handle or how did you come around to the fact that, you know, you were a defence family and dealing with all that comes with that. I don't know that we ever actually stopped to think about it. I think everything just unfolded almost naturally. So by the time he was going to Afghanistan and we were up in Townsville, and to be honest, we were really lucky. The unit in Armadale was run by a sergeant who was very much full-time army. And so even though it was a reservist unit, I don't know that it was ever 
felt like that. We were so entrenched and embedded in it. Albeit they're all family, peacetime army people, they were still very green. You know, I call it the green machine and, and they bleed green. So there was still very much that camaraderie in around Armadale. There was still very much the military kind of environment versus the civilian. So I had already started to learn and differentiate between the two, even in his non-CFT time, just with the reservist unit. Transferring up to Townsville, we were really fortunate. We met up with a whole heap of family friends or people that became family friends that were all military based. And in Townsville, it was a combination. It wasn't just army. So it was a mix of all, all military type people. And they were just lovely. We were embraced so well. In regards to the defence life, I don't know what differentiates a full-time family versus what we experienced as CFTS family. I mean, not a lot, but sometimes the, I guess, offers of support or the information isn't as readily available for reserve families or contract families. Look, I would have to say that, you know, again, not being able to see it from the other side, but talking experience-wise, I mean, when Matt left to go to Iraq, I was posted an A4 envelope and in that was literally four A4 pieces of paper giving me some sort of indication as what Matt might be like when he comes home. That was about the gist of my support. So I guess once he started to get some deployments under his belt, he probably obviously got a taste for it like they that's what they train to do that's what they go into the defense force to like most yep. of them to do how many deployments did he end up doing did he do back to back he did iraq and then he came home as i mentioned there was probably only about six months before he shipped out again and we moved up to townsville he did an eight month deployment to Afghanistan. While he was in Afghanistan, for Matt, the pinnacle was always SAS. That's where he wanted to go. That to him was the highlight of his career, was going to be the highlight of his career. So while he was in Afghanistan, he and I started talking. And I sort of, as you said, you know, this was it. It, it. We were too far gone now. There was no way he was coming out. There was no way he was doing anything else. And, you know, the life of moving around seemed to be okay. I, all of my fears had kind of gone away in that regard. And so we both agreed that when he came home from Afghanistan, that's what he was going to do. He was going to apply for SAS and see how we went. He hit the ground back in Australia. He put the application in for SAS and he was shortlisted and selected to go to Perth. Unfortunately, it was only 12 weeks. So he came home from Afghanistan. I had given birth to our first child while he was in Afghanistan. So he came home and got to meet her. He had 12 weeks trying to get to know his birth child, train, get ready. And he also had been qualified as a personal trainer and rehab specialist. So he didn't want to be reservist anymore. And if SAS didn't work out, he needed a fallback. And that's the path that he was going to undertake. So he was also building that up as well in that 12-week period which sounds super strange, but at the time, that's just what we did. He went to Perth and he was only there, I think, two weeks. And he was out, Bush as part of the process over there. He called it and pulled the pin. He talked to them about going back the following year and put mechanisms in place. And unfortunately, when he came home, I think that was in June, 
And then they were in Pakapanyal in November on a training exercise. And that's when he was involved in a pretty serious accident that ended his career. So he actually never got the chance to go back to Perth and go for the selection again. And so what was the exercise that he was on? You would have just sent him off thinking it was just an everyday exercise. He'd been there, done that many times before. Did you have any worries about him going on an exercise? It's just what defence partners do they just you know see you in what however many weeks and i'll talk to you when i talk to you what was that like when you got the call to say that he'd been injured that was pretty horrific so yeah it was I, though they were away for a 10-day course and i was down at my parents place in sydney and my mobile phone rang and it was actually matt calling me and it was sort of mid course which was really strange because there's no contact and the first thing out of his mouth was please don't panic with what I'm about to tell you. And I, again, I write about this in the book. Why do they always start with that? Why lead with that? Because of course my first reaction is, you know, oh my God, what is he about to say? So his next words were, I'm in hospital, I'm okay, and I've been here for four days. So I instantly went from panic to anger. Why are we four days into this and I'm only just getting a phone call from you now? Long and the short, they were on a nighttime exercise. There was uh, a number of Bushmasters and Matt was leading the convoy. He was out through the manhole. The driver didn't see a ditch and the Bushmaster was rendered to an instant stop as they've impacted in the ditch. Because Matt was out the gunnery window, the whiplash effect was so severe that his head took the brunt of the coming to a halt and it perforated, the, all the gunnery equipment at the top perforated through his helmet. So if he actually wasn't wearing his helmet, he would have been killed instantly. And that's not something that you think, I mean, there's always a risk. Any of us can be injured or die at any point, but you don't think something that he's been and done a number of times, that something like that's going to happen. It's obviously in the back of your mind that they're training and what they're doing, you know, there's potential for injury and but you just don't think that it's going to happen to your defence member. And I, you know, look, in his two deployments, that's when I panicked. It, you know, any of his training exercises on home soil, it didn't, it never, I don't even think it ever actually occurred to me that something could go wrong. The accident was unfortunate and it's sad and it ruined his career, but it was an accident and there's no blame there. It just is, it is what it is. It was everything that unfolded and transpired after the accident where it all went really wrong. Nine out of 10 defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning, has cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, and pin change functionality, savings roundups, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Fitbit Pay, Garmin Pay, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. Yeah, so obviously once you got the call and he'd been in hospital for a little while already, at that point, had your husband and yourself already realised that it was going to end his career or was there hope that, you know, he would rehab or, you know, that he would be okay and go back into defence in some capacity? What was the thinking at that stage? Initially, I think Matt buried his head in the sand. So he was in hospital for four days and, and Matt being Matt at that point in time just felt that, you know, nothing was being done. So why am I sitting here? Unfortunately, he was in excruciating pain 
But again, I think they break them down and rebuild them where you, you don't talk about pain, like you suppress it because there's a job to be done. And that was agitated because they were still out on exercise and they needed him. He was dripping clear fluid from his nose that we've since been told was brain fluid. But and, and they did do a scan while he was in hospital. I wasn't there, so I can only go by what he tells me. And I know how foggy and in the thick of things he was when he came home. So I can only assume that in the hospital he was probably worse. However, he got frustrated because he didn't feel like enough was being done. They couldn't find anything to justify the kind of pain that he felt he was experiencing. And so by day four, he was getting phone calls from the boys outfield going, what's going on? Are you coming back? And so he called it and he discharged himself and he went back outfield for the remaining four days or five days, whatever was left. I was mortified and I knew something wasn't quite right because of the way he was speaking on the phone, but no control. So I had no choice but to let him go. And I certainly didn't know who to call or what to do at that point. So I wrote it out and thought I'd just wait till he came home. He came home and that was in November. I was pregnant with our second child. So I was due in January. And you could just tell when he came home, something wasn't right. He was vague. He was foggy. You could tell that he was in a lot of pain. He was trying to hide it. You would have conversations with him and partway through the conversation, he would, it would seem like he just left. He checked out and then he would check back in again and be none the wiser. And he was very agitated. So this kind of evolved over a couple of weeks and I kept saying to him, something's not right. You know, I think you need to go and talk to somebody. And he would say, no, they've told me that medically I'm fine. Like, what are they going to do? They're not listening to me and I have to get on and do my job. I think in the end, he started to get a bit frightened as well, although he didn't want to let on. He started to ask for help and the army were sending him to the army doctors at that point. There was a few appointments down in Singleton and it, it all got very messy and mucky. So he was supposed to be on promotion course. They cited that they pulled him off the promotion course due to medical issues, outstanding medical issues, but wouldn't downgrade him medically. So all of a sudden, all of this work that he was doing as a reservist almost full time was just brought to a stop, but there was no ongoing support either. So all of a sudden now his effective full-time wage has been pulled from underneath him. Nobody's actually listening to him when he's going into the unit and asking for help. And you just start to watch because he didn't understand medically what was going on in his own brain and he couldn't he couldn't replicate the pain so he couldn't prove the pain because nobody could see it so he was starting to get agitated and that level of anxiety i guess and that level level of anger couldn't be displayed in uniform and so it would be displayed at home and that's when things started to get really worse I had the baby in January, so Scarlett, our second child. And there was one day there, probably she was about four, maybe six weeks old. And I'd asked him just to hold the baby for a minute. And then all of a sudden he's had an episode and I've turned around and you could just see he was white as a ghost. He had frozen, but he was shaking. And when I walked over to him, he's just started yelling at me, take it, take it, take it, just take it. Now, he knew that whatever it was he was holding was 
precious, but his brain had disconnected and he couldn't actually understand what it was he was holding. And so he, he couldn't work out if he was supposed to be frightened of it, if he was supposed to take care of it. There was just this whole jumble mess in his head. At that point, for me, that was panic. I couldn't leave him alone. I couldn't convince him not to drive. I couldn't convince him not to be normal. I couldn't convince him not to go and work with his clients in his personal training business. And I couldn't convince him not to put the uniform on. So he was still going in and, you know, into this place that was now in his own mind, he was starting to feel like was the enemy, but he still had to go back there because as far as he was concerned, he was still a soldier. He was going to get better. He was going to go back to Perth. Everything was going to be okay. So it's almost like bury my head in the sand, ignore all this bad stuff that's going on, nap at the family and try and keep going on normal. And normal just didn't exist anymore. And how were you coping? Because you were stuck. You're at home with a new baby and other kids that you're looking after as well. And you're watching him decline in front of your face. You already saw that he wasn't the same person when he came back from that exercise and out of hospital. And you could see what was happening, but were stuck in being able to help him or encourage him any more than what you were doing to get help. So how were you feeling about being so stuck at that point? It was literally like walking on eggshells. So I was still working in a part-time capacity. So I had taken maternity leave and kind of split that in a part-time role. So I still had my work. I was fortunate I can work from home. So I was there, but I still had to achieve the outcomes. I had two children now under two. I had the older girls that were still quite young. And I had a husband who was breaking down and I couldn't explain to him that he was breaking down. He wanted none of it. So in the moments where he was quite agitated and angry and reactive, I was protecting the children. It was never physically violent. It was always very verbal and very agitated and angry. So you were trying to find ways not to trigger that. I would have to work to try and find clarity times where I thought that I could maybe get through to him and try and talk to him on a level where he would start to relate and understand. And trying to find that level of language is quite difficult because it's not a, a situation I'd ever been in before. So I was, I was in a state. I was in a state of shock. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was wrong with him. Um, I just knew something was wrong with him. I knew it had to be related to the accident because that's when everything changed. The best I could do at that point was keep trying to get him to go back to the army and trying to break down the perception that, you know, it's not a broken leg, therefore it mustn't be real. And that's exactly how he was being treated. Mate, you look fine, therefore there's nothing wrong with you. What was the turning point where I guess your husband started to realise that something had to change and where he he got the help that he needed? And I guess the point where he, he was discharged from service, how did that all play out? Because you know, if they're telling him he looks fine and he is not wanting to accept the fact that he's probably going to have to discharge out of the army, at what point did it come to a head where things started to change or that, that realisation sort of dropped for your husband? It didn't come to him as easily as it came to me. So it was about June. So he had the accident in November. And from November through to June, 
that's in, in the world of this chaos that we're living in and this agitated state of fury, that's a really long time to be constantly told, no, there's nothing we can do for you. No, there's no help for you. No, there's, and, and again, this is a select unit. This is 12th, 16th Hunter River Lancers between Armidale and, and headquarters in Tamworth being bounced back and forward by these people being told, you look fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And him not wanting me to go and talk to them because that's not, you know, that's not how it's done. So by June, I'd had enough. And the turning point for me was starting to hear this person who doesn't seem like my husband anymore start. And, and the, the one comment for me that turned it for me, he was in the best way I can describe it simply is by saying he was in a very depressive state. And he was sitting on the couch in our lounge room and he just said, they don't believe me. Maybe it isn't real. I honestly think I would have been better off coming home in a cardboard box from Afghanistan. You would have been treated better. That for me was the pinnacle point. That's my husband telling me he gives up, that this is too hard, that it, it hurts too much, the pain is too great, and he's checking out. So that was my fight, fright awareness. That afternoon, I sat down in my office at home and I wrote a ministerial. And I wrote to Chief of Defence and I wrote to the politicians, um, MPs for Defence, and I just said, is it because he's a reservist? Is this why he's been treated like a white elephant in the room? He stepped up twice for his country. How can this be the best he gets? And collectively, you all need to do better. You've failed in your duty of care to him. And I want a response or I will scream loud enough that I will force you to give me a response. That was amazing. That ministerial triggered a, a landslide of bells and alarms and people started jumping through hoops. And the next sort of six months post that probably got harder before they got better. It seemed like the Defence Force on this mission to prove that he's not injured from the accident. He's got PTSD from Afghanistan. Now, if there is one place my husband thrived in, it was in wartime. And any soldier, well, most soldiers I know will tell you that that's the pinnacle for them. That's what they train for. They love going to war and so did he. So having the thought of that all removed from him, that was what was triggering panic and anxiety and depression, not what he did when he was in Afghanistan or Iraq. So the next six months we were being sent to the gold coast and then we were being sent to coffs harbor and we were being sent to sydney and they were sending us to all these specialists and all these specialists kept talking about afghanistan and matt never wants to talk about war in front of me you know what happens over there he did over there and kind of having that discussion in front of me was what was giving him anxiety not anything he's not ashamed of how he conducted himself as a soldier over there he just it's not something that he wanted to talk about in front of me so we got bounced around from all these specialists and then finally somebody said i don't think you're suffering from anything that you've done overseas i want to do some more tests and that's when they started medically searching a little bit deeper and it was eight or nine months post the accident that they finally identified that he actually had brain trauma and on top of that, 
he now had brain trauma-induced epilepsy. So that whole time where I thought he was just checking out or not listening or shut down or angry, or he was actually having silent seizures. So for eight months, he was just having these horrible seizures in his head and nobody thought enough of him to search or help or dive a bit deeper. Oh my gosh. And when you found that out and when your husband found that out, obviously it's relief knowing that there is something that you can attribute all that's been going on. But then there's also that realization for your husband, you already realized what was, you know, what was going to happen, but it's that realization that suddenly they're not going to be telling you nothing's wrong anymore. You're still in the army. You're still fine. It's now that there's definitely no option of continuing that career that he thought he was going to have. Yeah, that's where it got probably worse before it got better. And that was the the depressive and, and depressive state because yes, now we had a diagnosis and that was great. But that also through that period, through that eight month period, he lost his personal training business and the diagnosis meant that he couldn't get insurance. So he couldn't renew the reservist unit. So there's no more contract at this point. He's now back to a reservist. And the reservist unit basically turned their back on him. We have no funds. We have no ability to help you. We can't do anything. So he literally had his entire world disintegrate in front of him. And the ministerial triggered Canberra to initiate help for us by a guy by the name of Pete Goon. He drove up and spent some time in Armidale to get to know us. And I write about him in the book that if it wasn't for Pete Goom, I'm not sure that Matt and I would have survived, but I'm also more than that, I'm not sure Matt would have survived because all of a sudden now you've got this person that worked in this high adrenaline, fast-paced, organised, structured world that he thrived in and all of that has been removed. There is nothing left and there is no hope either of what was supposed to be his future. And not only did we now remove all of that from this human being, but there's no support mechanism in place either because the unit in Armidale, it was, they washed their hands of it. It's like two hard basket, put him over there. He organised an IWB, so um, those that don't know, internal welfare board meeting. And the major at the time in um, 12 16, his exact words, and I catchphrase it in the book, you know, the ball stopped with me. We dropped the ball. We absolutely dropped the ball in our duty of care to Matt. It stops with me. Things will change. And sadly, they just didn't change. So for the next sort of 14 months, we were bounced around, pillar to post. And it was the, the Christmas time the following year, and it was four days before Christmas. And things had gotten so bad. And sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, we bought a coffee shop because I was still working and I was still traveling. And the whole trying to leave Matt somewhere where I felt that he was safe. We bought a coffee shop and we employed staff off our own money, everything from us, staff that could kind of manoeuvre. They were friends of ours and they could protect him if I was away or they could, you know, give him time out while he was at the shop. So it was about four days before the Christmas and he had been so bad the weeks leading in and one of the the acting boss at 12 16th at the time he had come into the coffee shop and he was just kind of like oh hey mate how you going make me a coffee yeah 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 and he was the guy that was blocking matt in in every kind of corner trying to get help and that triggered matt that was you know matt while he was in the coffee shop with matt matt was very professional and as soon as he left the staff told me like it was just that kicked matt over the edge 
I was at home, the staff called me to say that he had left and we put in all these you know, checkpoints and safety mechanisms of people around town that if for whatever reason Matt was having an episode or something, people would alert me and I would put things in place to try and find him and track him down. It was like this ever evolving trying to work within the boundaries of Matt. And we couldn't find him. It had gone on for a few hours and I was starting to panic and I got a phone call and it was Matt and I had the little kids at home and I answered the call going, babe, you know, where are you? And I couldn't hear anything. And I just, I kept asking, Matt, are you there? I need you to talk. I just need you to tell me that you're okay. I just need you to say something. And I sort of started to hear a whimper. And the next thing I just heard, a whisper just say, I can't do this anymore. I'm so sorry. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 